Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live from the heart of Manhattan at Rockefeller Center, Newsstand Studios, joined as usual with uh, John behind me. How you doing? Doing great, thanks. Yeah, everything good? Yeah, everything's great. Oh, nice. Yeah. Got uh, Joe Hazen rocking the panels. What's up? Hey, man. How are you doing? Doing all right, I guess. It's fine. You look good. Huh? Sweaty. You like that? You like that sweaty look? I don't look? mind sweat. All right. Uh, I think on telephone, we've got uh, Nastasi the Hammer Lopez. How you doing, Stas? Good. Yeah? Yeah? Nice. Uh, how's yeah. uh, How's the great state of Connecticut? Fine. Great. Uh, what is it? Best small state, best state. Isn't that the motto? It's not really nutmeg. No one says that. Like on all, if you go to a bookstore in Connecticut, and they have a section on Connecticut, which they should. Otherwise, why are you shopping there? Right? It says small state, best state. You know what I'm talking about, John? No. I oh, don't. come on, dudes. Thought you were my thought you were my Connecticut man behind I me. I love Connecticut, me up, but I'm not sure heard. that. We got uh, Quinn in, up there in uh, Vancouver Island. Yep. Nice. Hey. Nice. And do we have uh, uh, Mr. Molecules back? Yes, sir. I'm here. Jack, how you doing? I'm good. I'm yeah. good. Yeah. All right. I'm a little depressed. Uh, depressed overhearing your pre-show chat, but uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, we were talking before the air with, uh, and as as uh, you know, as we do now, we'll introduce our special uh, guest today is Mark Forgione, you know, well-known uh, chef of zillions of restaurants, a new hospitality group. He's going to be talking about uh, was the youngest Iron Chef, I think. Was that right? Is that, does that still have meaning, youngest Iron Chef? I mean, I guess. I'm definitely not the youngest anymore. But <laughs> Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> I was 13 years ago. <laughs> yeah, if, if you, it turns out if you don't die, you're not the youngest of anything anymore. You know what I mean? Which is good. You don't want to be. You know, you, you want to uh, stay alive. All right. So, uh, so what we were talking about before uh, we were on the air is that, uh, you know, how robots are going to take over everything. And it's only going to be like the small group of people who actually care. Right. In other words, there's... Okay, do you use the term shoemaker in terms of like a chef who doesn't really care, just showing up, clocking their, clocking their, their job and getting out, but doesn't really have a passion for it? They're I not would, bad I, at what I they do. I call those nine-to-fivers. Nine-to-fivers? Yeah. So we used to, at the, at the FCI, the term everyone used to use is shoemaker. They're a shoemaker, which is freaking weird because you know what? Making shoes, not... It, it's a craft. It's a, cra- it's a freaking yeah. great craft. I mean, like a person who's good at making shoes, like that's the thing. I don't know why we're insulting shoemakers, but it was like shoemaker. <laughs> but in other words, like there's not going to be that much room you know, 20 years from now for the shoemaker. You know what I mean? Yeah. Or the, or the nine to five. I don't think we have a long enough uh, session to go, to get into all that. But, you know, as we were saying before, it's, it's just a little scary, but, yeah. you know, that's why, you know, I try to give advice to people all the time. Like just, you know, instead of joining, like try to, try to carve your own path. Right. Well, is it that we're all going to be, in other words, like, are we all going to end up like Wally where we're in like massage chairs all the time hooked up to like a virtual nightmare? Or like with like stuff being pumped into us, or in which case we don't need to make money because it's all virtual; it doesn't matter. Or right, are we going to are we going to all become rich because we can produce so much, or are we all going to become poor because no one needs us anymore? Who knows? Hey, so we weren't supposed to talk about that on air, <laughs> but that's what we were talking about beforehand. And Jack was like, "Oh, it's depressing." Is that pretty accurate, Jack? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, uh, all right. So. Uh, now is the time on the show where we uh, shoot the breeze over uh, any interesting uh, food experiences or whatnot that we've had over the past week, and for Jack, two weeks because he wasn't here. Anyone got anything? Uh, anyone got anything good? Well, nothing on my end. Yeah. Two weeks, you haven't eaten one good thing. You haven't made one good <laughs> thing. You haven't eaten one good thing. I mean, I completely honest. No, no. Yeah, so, uh, well, I don't know. So, Mark here, who, you know, is, has like what now? How many restaurants are you working? You're opening another one, reopening another one right now. He has an interesting food story related to the restaurant or unrelated to the restaurant. Could uh, be either. A little bit of both. All right, actually. what do you got? What do you got? Um, so, um, you know, my family from, from Italy, the, the Italian side, we're from the, the south, you know, a little just above the boot. Um, and the way that we do ragu, I don't know if anybody on here is Italian, but. Um, we do, we do like a Sunday, Sunday sauce. Um, but one of the, the kind of interesting things about the Southern style is that you take the meat out of the sauce and you kind of keep it warm somewhere else. And, you know, I had everything from, um, you know, we had a, a tongue in there, you know, beef shank, um, you know, pork, copa, um, a whole bunch of different things. Like basically what everybody in the pot, but then the cool part about it is you puree all the vegetables and the sauce and the fat, which is the best part because it emulsifies. And then you put that on pasta before you eat the meat. And every time I introduce this to somebody, they're like, you know, they, it blows their mind that, that you can like, 
you know, take something like this simple. And then after you eat this bowl of pasta, then you eat all the braised meat with like salsa verde and pickled peppers. And, and, um, we're going to initiate that at, um, at one fifth in a couple of weeks. So I figured I'd practice at home on Sunday. Oh, that's real. That's a super old school. Like that's uh, is, they do that in Italy. Cause that's the way my f- stepfather's family always did it in Boston. Like the Boston Italians, like that was the yeah. way, but yeah. for, you know, there we were always, it was always the same. It was always, uh, sausage with the fennel, pork chop, brajol, meatballs. Yep. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, course. we didn't have all the other fancy stuff in it, like, you know. Yeah, well, it's funny. The stuff I just mentioned is the peasant stuff. <laughs> what did you, you say, Quinn? That's how my family does it, too. Oh, yeah. that uh, would, yeah. My, my grandparents are from uh, Calabria. Yep, southern, yeah. And they call it gravy, not freaking sauce in Boston, <laughs> right? And it's macaroni and gravy with, and then the meat come out, comes out separately. But there's something really nice about staging it in, I mean, you know, in, in stages because it implies an arc to a dinner that is kind of there, that just belongs. You know what I mean? But how does it, in a restaurant, is that work in a restaurant setting to, I guess it does if they're going to be forced to have a tasting anyway, or if they're doing a family style. Like, what's what's the presentation going to be? What do you think is going well, to work? We're about to find out. We haven't done it before or yet. Um, but the idea is, you know, we're going to charge like a, a prefix, but you know, in, included in that prefix would be a Sunday night thing, you know? Um, you know, you get the the two courses. So you're not just like buying the Sunday gravy, like on a, and you get an individual bowl. Like the idea will be like, you know, say it's four people, you guys all order the Sunday sauce and then everybody will get their pasta first and then we'll just put all the meat in a giant pot in the middle and then everybody can kind of just pick at it and have fun. And you're kind of trying to bring like the Sunday sauce that in Boston that you, you used to have, you know, into a restaurant setting. Yeah, yeah. I kind of, yeah, I haven't had that style in years because they're all dead. Yeah. Like everyone, yeah. everyone that I used, that used to make that uh, for me in Boston is dead. Nice. So it's, uh, yeah. So it's <laughs> like, uh, yeah, it's weird. It would be, it would be interesting to have it again. Like I've had that happen a couple of times. So my stepfather's father in Boston, he was a butcher and his specialty was lamb. And so when I was a kid, he would get the baby lamb, you know, the unweaned like lamb uh, because he used to slaughter all of his own lamb. And that's why he got out of the business, actually. He's like, they're not going to let me slaughter anymore in the city, so F it, I'm out. You know what I mean? And uh, I remember the first time someone served me baby lamb at a restaurant, and I almost cried. I was yeah. like, oh, my God, baby lamb. I know that p- people probably are horrified baby lamb. It's delicious. Of course. At Easter time? I cooked one last Easter. Really? Are you going to do one this year or no? No, my, my in-laws don't like lamb. Oh. <laughs> what about goat? <laughs> they don't like goat, that's for sure. <laughs> So I got them a tenderloin and I ordered a little bit of lamb for me. Yeah. But I mean, it doesn't take that many. I mean, baby lamb weighs what? Like, I remember once I got one for him when he was like in his 90s and I told him to wait. And I forget what it was. It was like 14, 15 pounds. Yeah, I was about to say probably yeah. 15 pounds. Yeah. He's like, oh, that's real. That's not the garbage one. Yeah. I was like, yeah, dude. I mean, I'm not going to buy you garbage. <laughs> you're 90. This is your last time maybe you're going to ever have it. You know what I mean? So like, anyway, uh, old school, delicious. Um all right, what about you, Stas? You got any food? Any food stuff going on? Nope. No? All right. What about you, Quinn? Quinn, you always have a good, uh, some sort of good food catastrophe that you've been working on. Uh, actually, I, I, I didn't do much, but something that I found at the grocery store that was very unusual, fresh fenugreek. Ah. Was just at the supermarket. So I made like a, you know, basic sort of pesto, then a pasta with like a little uh, burrata on top. Pretty good. The leaves or the seeds? The leaves. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah like a fresh herb. Yeah, I only have the seeds. You know, I think I've said it before. Fenugreek is that spice that I really like, and I never cook with it. Me neither. I have it, but, like, whenever I smell it, I'm like, oh, fenugreek, yeah. Like, it's like, oh, you know, it's got that maple smell from Sotolone, and I'm like, ooh, yeah. And then I, I, I have it at home, but I'm never like, hey. It's got dust in the, in the, in the spice cabinet, probably. Yeah, well, I mean, I have my stuff well-sealed. <laughs> Mark, I'm telling myself well sealed, but you know, in fact, I just went through. So like uh, my, uh, I don't know if I talked about this. My wife, here's a, here's a food thing I haven't talked about. My, uh, I have like at any one time, you know, a couple hundred pounds of grain in the house and beans, you know, all this stuff, beans, grains, rice, all that crap, a couple hundred pounds. And, uh, it was in bags, you know what I mean? Because I don't have like a garage, so I can't like put things into like five gallon drums and store them somewhere. 
And so they were in bed and they were rolling around and like I'm I'm always petrified because it's happened. It's hap- I've never had it spread through my entire pantry, but I've had bugs come in on stuff and then get into like one bag, but I've never had a transfer. And the bags were flopping all over the place. And so you're looking for a particular thing. So I bought all half gallon mason jars and I, uh, a thing that hooks my vacuum sealer up to the mason jar thing and vacuumed like my entire kitchen now is just like perfect mason jars labeled with all the stuff in it. And it takes, um, I forget how many pounds fit in each mason jar. It's like three or something like two, three pounds of, uh, three pounds of, uh, you know, wheat fitting in. And so that's a, it's, it's perfect now. Yeah. My wife would get literally get turned on by that. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. And my, <laughs> well, my wife was like, I went from hating the kitchen. She also made me take all the liquor, which was all like kind of in the open place and put it back in the pantry where all these bags used to be. She's like, I don't want to see all these like half empty liquor bottles around. I'm like, all right, I don't care. We'll drink them. Yeah. But anyway, so that's something, you know? Um, oh, here's something else. So, uh, I had to buy cake flour because my birthday last week. And uh, so my son Booker, he likes to make the milk bar, you know, cake, which everybody he, loves that thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, he likes to make it. So like the the way it's made, if in case you know, I don't know, you live under a rock, you've never seen this cake. Is she bakes a sheet cake, then like a thin sheet cake, like on a, on a, like a sheet pan, right? Not like a thick sheet cake, and then cuts out discs, and then chums up one because there's not enough left over because she doesn't want to waste anything, then puts the icing and then makes cake crumbles and smashes it all together inside of an acetate ring, inside of a cake ring, and then sets it in the freezer overnight, pulls it out, and there you go, six-inch cake, 60 bucks, whatever it is. You know what I mean? So, like, there it is. So, he he makes it and, of course, totals totals the kitchen, obliterates the kitchen. (laughs) Like, I could have made the cake a thousand times faster than it took to clean the kitchen after he was done with it because... I don't know, whatever. He's autistic. Whatever. It doesn't matter. But he makes the cake. But he, he makes me buy cake flour because, of course, he's not going to shell out of his own pocket. He's not going to reach into his own pocket, even though he's 21, to buy his dad cake no, flour. No, of course not. No. So I go and I buy the Swans Down cake flour, which I buy. And for the first time ever, I read the side of it. You know what it says on the side of it? Big lie. This is my thing. They say that it's 27 times, times finer than AP flour. That's garbage. That's just a load of horse hockey. That's just garbage. That's just not possible. You'd have to ask my pastry chef for that one. Well, so like I didn't have time this morning because I just discovered this like, you know, pretty recently. I was going to do it. I I have a microscope at home. I'm just going to freaking do it. I'm going to look at it. And, you know, I'm not one of these like, you know, I'm not going to be like, we need a class action lawsuit. I need my $3 back. You know what I mean? But like, come on, man. We should find a a sieve that is 27 times finer. Then the next one, and then dump the flowers into them side by side and see yeah, what happens. See what comes through. Well, so they claim it's like, you know, three times smaller on a side. But then, you know, uh, someone on my Twitter put it in and was like, hey, they measured this back in 1933. And I don't think they've updated their copy. You know what I mean? So Makes it's sense. like, maybe it was true in 1933, but it's just not true. And also, who gives a crap? Yeah. Right? I mean. How'd the cake come up? Good. There you go. Yeah. And I have to say, you know, she does that cake crumble like which is like you know like a like a streusel top but like you know with with uh, what's it called uh, what are those things sprinkles mm-hmm. and, and uh, confetti yeah yeah and uh, he overdid it and they went brown better interesting yeah it gets, took on that hey, sometimes mistakes turn into the best ideas yeah took on that brown that, that brown butter stuff you know anyway uh, what about what about you John anything anything in your restaurant world no. Yeah, you fixed all the leaks in your ceiling. Finally, you, you yeah. know, have a watertight kitchen. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, aren't you fancy? For now, at least we'll see until <laughs> it happens again. Where was the leak? Like, what was it leaking onto? Because to me, that's always the most fun. And what was the source of the leak? Was it rainwater? No. Or- oh no! <laughs> it was over every inch of dish pit. So oh jeez! Clean. No so man. Shut everything down. It was. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Great. New York, New yeah. York. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, it's like uh, you're always dealing with some other jerks thing here in the city. You know what I mean? Like, or just age. I mean, everything in New York is old. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But even dealing with the vendors every week, like my linen company has been shorting me, and it's just like. I think they do that on purpose. Yeah. Let me ask you. paying attention. Yeah. Is it, would it be cheaper to just, I know that, I don't know anyone that does it. Would it be cheaper just to get like a home washer dryer? No? Not anymore. You got to pay somebody $20 an hour to do it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the truth. Used to be. Yeah. 
I don't know. I feel like linens is one of those things where we had a guy, I don't even know his name. We just called him Mopey because he was always so Mopey. And then he would show up, but he would always get the billing wrong. So we wouldn't pay for like three months. We wouldn't know what's happening. All of a sudden we would get three months of bills and then we're like, what the hell's happening here? And I was like, linens always a nightmare. Linen, yeah. You know? How harsh are you with your cooks on the number of towels they use? Uh, I hate to say I used to be, but I'm not anymore. But I used to be, and I'm not anymore. Yeah, yeah. Well, how, I don't even remember how much is it. How much does it cost to have one of those things uh, swapped out? I, I I hate to admit it. I you know I haven't looked at a, a linen bill since I stopped like day to day on my own. It's all the same, you know what I mean? Like, and at the end of the day, it's like you, you could shop at the ten different companies. They're all you know. Yeah, I feel like there's like it's just like like five. We'll call it ten years ago, you know, like. I would say you know, each cook got five towels. Five know? towels a shift. That was it. Yeah. Couldn't get any more. Don't you know? Don't mess it up. Da da da. Now it's just, you know, they're everywhere. Mm. Twenty three cents a kitchen towel is one of the quotes I have in my email. What is it? Twenty three cents. Twenty three cents. Twenty three cents. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. The whole thing's. Uh, I don't know. In France, you get one. What the hell are you gonna do with one? I swear to God, you get one towel. It's a Big towel, but you, you get one. You get one towel and complimentary food poisoning. Yeah, you keep it, you keep it, <laughs> you keep it tied to your uh, to your apron. Yeah, well, are you, are, you make everyone do the old school so that they can reach for the pan? No, I don't. I tried it when I got back from France, and like, there's a lot of things that in Europe that don't work in America, trust me. Yeah, I'm sure. Like, you know, like uh, I remember... Well, like so, doing your own butchering. Nope. Well, so, uh, <laughs> you know, you said that, like, um, I guess you went to France, you had already been... When you did your, your stages in France, you'd already been a sous chef here, right? You'd already started working for Laurent Turandel, but then... Yeah, you, I, f- I felt like I, I got a little too promoted too early for where I was, and I was, I was young. Um, I think I was, you know, I was like, I was like, you know, one of those guys where, you know, I was the first one in, last one out. I'm not like bragging. I'm just painting a picture. I think when chefs see that, you know, they're... They're eager to keep them around. So, you know, like, ah, oh, make, make him the AM sous chef. And, like, you know, once you become a sous chef, you can't, like, go back. It's like the next place you go, you're the sous chef again. You know what I mean? And I just, I kind of wanted to, like, I don't know, learn a little more. Or, you know what I mean? I just felt like, and I also, too, like, here being Larry Fogion's son, it was like, especially in New York, like, it was just, you know, some chefs... It was like I never had a moment where I wasn't Larry Ford Jones' kid, like, right. every day. You know what I mean? It was just no matter what. Like, With, if that's I, probably good and bad. It's good and bad. If you did, I was just about to say, if you did something good, they'd be like, ah, your father must have shot you that. If you did something bad, like, oh, would your dad tell you that? Like, you know what I mean? It was just like, it never stopped. Still, right. still not really to this day, but I'm okay with it now. Well, but, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's been a long, long time. Yeah, but you yeah. add in, like, all those factors, and I was like, you know, I just, I want to go somewhere where... You know, they don't care if I was a sous chef at my last job. They don't care that I'm Larry Fogion's kid. Da, 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 da. So well, also, I, there it's more of a culture of like family lines of, of chefs, right? So it's not like yeah, it's not a you know a big deal there. You, you can know? come from a line of well-known chefs and still have to stand on your own there. Yes. Well, it's funny. Speaking of my dad, my 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 father worked at um, the Connaught Hotel, and believe it or not, his Comey was. Um, one of the Trois Gros sons. No, come on. And my dad says that this kid, it was, it was Claude, who's now like the biggest chef in Brazil. But he said that Claude, the, the amount of, um, you know, the shit, sorry, S-H-I-T, that he had to deal with was like, it made my dad feel bad. Like, he was <laughs> like, look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to push you. Like, no matter what Claude did, it was just like, you know, ah, oh, the son of famous Trois Gros. So like, you know, um... You know, they get it too there. But but again, I just wanted to go somewhere to like, I hate to say start from scratch, but like, you know, I just wanted to like go and like get my butt kicked. Well, you didn't even speak the language. I didn't. Um, took like four or five months to get the language. Um, and again, just to paint a picture, there, you know, there was no TV. I didn't have a laptop. This was before phones, iPhones. Um, if I wanted to call my family, I went to the payphone in town. Um so it was literally just the total immersion of Good food. news is you don't have to call your family that often. <laughs> People don't think about this. They're like, oh, you couldn't call your family. I'm like, the good news is you didn't have to call your family that often. I mean? Yeah, man. I mean, it was, it was total isolation, um, especially for the first three or four months. 
Um, and so this was uh, Michel Gerard's place, right? Or however you're supposed yep. to pronounce it en français. Yep. Hey, John, Francophile. Michel Gerard. There you go. That's perfect. That's the reason he's always here. Is in case we have a French word, he can just bust it out. Uh, but it's he, just, you know, it's three-star Michelin. It was in the middle, an uh, absolute middle of nowhere. You know, again, I wanted to do the antithesis of New York. And it was an hour drive in any direction and you didn't hit another city. I mean, it was nothing there. Like people who ate there stayed at the... The hotel, which is also a five-star, world-renowned spa, um, and you know it was it was exactly what I I think I needed and wanted, and then, you know I don't think I'd be sitting across from you right now if I hadn't taken that year and a half. Was he still doing? Uh, I guess I mean, uh, at what point was Cuisine Mansour at that point, or however it's pronounced? Uh, so when you stay there again, there's there's no choices. Like you can't eat anywhere else. Like, right. So when you stay there, there's three different restaurants to eat at. There's the, the Cuisine Gourmand, which is like the three-star. Then there was Cuisine Menseur, which was like the, we'll call it the spa cuisine. And then there was this restaurant, which um, really kind of struck me the most, was the Le, Le Ferme au Grive, which was very similar to Peasant, which I know we'll get into. Um, you know, you walked into this restaurant and it was very like rustic and French and farm. There was a pig always roasting on the rotisserie and... Um, you know, everybody started their meal with a mason jar of foie gras terrine and, you know, homemade crusty bread. Like it was... So not the same as the spa cuisine. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> but it, like, you have to see it to believe it, but like it, it actually looks like peasant, which, you know, kind of full circle in life, you know, sometimes universe works that way. But, yeah. but is that where you spent most of your time in, in the, in the, that no, one? No, I, I never really got to work there. I, I used to... I used to ask if I could hang out in there like on my day off or days off or whatever. Um, but I never got to fully work there. I, I did Minsur first and then Gourmand and, um, I, I really hit it off with the, the Poissonnier at, in La Gourmand. So like, I just basically was his call me essentially the whole time. So how did it work? If you were there and staying there, did everyone like try to have the spa thing, which he's famous for, by the way, I mean, famous for this. Yeah. 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 Uh, and then the next day they go to the, get the foie gras and pig, right? I mean, like, <laughs> I don't on. know. I, I didn't follow the guests around. I don't even think I ever saw the guests, to be honest with you. Um, I, don't, I don't know exactly how that all kind of worked out, but... Yeah, he's still uh, kicking, right? He's like 90 years old. I mean, when I was there, he was in his 70s, and he worked... If he wasn't traveling, he worked every service at Adler Gourmand. He's like this tall. Too. Uh, well, we started out at like six foot one, and then just keeps getting shorter <laughs> every year is what happened. He's, he was a little guy, but I'm telling you to this day... I've never been in a room where everyone, you know, stands at attention when he walked in. I mean, everyone. Didn't matter who you were, didn't matter what position you were. Like, he walked in, you And, you know, he would walk through and he'd taste your stuff. I mean, the, the intensity every day at, at 5.30 or 6 o'clock, I can't remember. And it was every day. You know, tasted the sauce. He looked at your mise en place. I mean, it was wild. All right, so let's, uh, let's do our little bookkeeping here. So if you have any questions for Mark and you're listening live on Patreon, call in to 917-410-1507. That's 917-410-1507. And uh, how do they join the Patreon there, John? Patreon.com slash cooking issues. We've got a bunch of different membership levels. You get cool things at every level. You can get the video feed. At all levels, you get a uh, discount to books at Kitchen Arts and Letters, you know, from guests that we have on that have books that can be sold. Um, yeah, prioritize questions, getting answered, access to the Discord, and all these really great things. So you should join uh, patreon.com slash cooking issues. And if I can make a quick plug, Dave, of Plugity plug, plugity, 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 plugity. Uh, one of my friends, uh, for those of you around New York City, is organizing a sort of leadership event with uh, Ari Weinswig from, uh, my God, what's the, Zingerman's in, uh, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's going to be a really great event. I am trying my best to go. It's going to be at El Coro, so there should be some great food, too. Um, reach out to me on Instagram. Just, just trying. Not going to make it. Just trying. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's hard to take time off. It's true. I feel really guilty whenever I do, but okay. whatever. It's a separate issue. All right. Um, but, yeah, reach out to me on Instagram, Nihul J. All right. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Uh, all right. So you mentioned your dad. For those of you, I don't know, that don't know, uh, your dad's Larry Forgione, who's like in the... so. I've said this a lot to people who have asked me, which isn't that much, actually. So I haven't said it a lot because no one asked me. But it's like I think that there was in America a huge kind of shift in the 90s where 
into the early 2000s where people really started focusing on American food as American food and like as like a real important cuisine and we had our own voice as opposed to just mimicking what's going on in France or looking at what's going on in France. And then I had to remember when you were coming on looking at us, I was like, oh my God, but your dad was doing this since the 80s. You know what I mean? Like American Place opens in 83. 70s. Yeah. So he's like way early in the whole like America's a real place for food Yeah, there's a a picture that I have hanging in, in Forge where, you know, he's wearing the toque and the whole thing. But it's 1979, standing outside the River Cafe with American asparagus, morels, artichokes, like all in a basket. Um, and that had never been done on the East Coast up until that point. And that's in the 70s, if you think. Right, and he was cooking. He had to go to the airport. He was cooking with country ham, putting it with eggs. Like American, not just American ingredients, but also like some American flavors, American ideas. It started as... French cuisine with American ingredients, and then it kind of evolved into a lot of history, reading books, and then it turned into, you know, him uh, taking dishes from the 1800s, you know, the early 1900s of American dishes, you know. Right, so I don't, I mean, this is an aspect of American kind of restaurant culture that I, I just don't feel gets enough play in where we became our own culinary force and really what you know like uh, he's do, he's doing he's doing that very early in it so i like i think this is a well john you're a, you're a student of uh, history when i can used to work to mofad do you think people like think about this kind of switch in american restaurant culture enough or no no i wish they did not anymore i think yeah not anymore. i i think in 1990 right if you had asked chefs American young cooks, chefs, you know, they would kind of understand who and what was happening, this like revolution. But now, you know, I agree, like 2023, if you asked, you know, somebody like who are the most important American chefs of all time, and I'm not making fun of these people, I'm just saying this is who they'd probably say, you know, uh, Bobby Flay, uh, you know, Guy Fieri, and uh, you know where I'm going with this. Like, it's just, you know, that the you know, the, the kind of the forefathers of the Mount Rushmore, you know, of the Alice Waters, the Larry Forgione, the, you know, Dean Faring, Paul Perdome, like, you know, all the, all the Bradley Ogden, all, all these guys, you know, um, sad to say, but like anything, they're just kind of getting, you know, washed away, aged like, out or yeah. washed out or well, none of those people that I just named are ever on TV. Right. Well, you, you know, know what I, I mean? I, I, this, so because restaurant cooking is so youth oriented uh, or can be youth oriented I feel like and this bar is probably even worse is that there is a lack of knowledge so I remember I remember like you know all of my buddies in the early 2000s they were like none of these cooks know who none of my cooks know who like you know you know name name a name a French you know name a famous French yeah yeah Chagrin, you know, all these guys yeah yeah, yeah. They, I mean Robichon was still working here in New York so they kind of yeah. knew but they're like yeah you know, I tell you yeah, yeah. But, but like you know what I mean but they they didn't know kind of the history that to the people who are even my age right like the Changs the Wileys like those guys like them that was still real history but to the people who were 10 years younger than them it was kind of gone yep. and so listen I had I did a guest thing with Wiley he did a, a, this playing with fire series that we do at at Peasant. Uh, half of my cooks didn't know who Wiley was. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't believe it. How do you not know who Wiley Dufresne is? The the institutional <laughs> the institutional memory, and it's like so people who aren't on TV or don't have like uh, you know the books or the you know, <clears throat> it's just bizarre. Yep. And, and like uh, it's very easy to trace histories, right? If you take the time, but I just don't, I feel like, uh, I don't know, maybe people just don't care about the history anymore. Yeah. I don't I, know. I, we did it, um, I haven't done it in a while, but we used to do these, um, like every week or maybe every month, you know, we'd, we'd like pick one of those chefs, you know, and like we'd talk about them, whether it was not every day, but you know, maybe at like three or four different pre-shifts where we would just bring up, you know, a little history lesson that you could do in 10 minutes. I mean, it wasn't like, you know, we gave him a test or anything, but it was more just to like 
acknowledge because you know that's where I came from. That's where I grew up in. Yeah, <laughs> and, I, and I know that I'm kind of lucky in that sense. So it's easy for me to say like, ah, oh, nobody pays attention. Like I literally grew up with those people. I mean, going to the Rockefeller Center event, it was all those people that I just named at the City Meals on Wheels. Um, so you know, they're all very familiar to me, and I have so much respect for it, and so much respect for how hard they had to work and how hard they had to work to source those ingredients. I mean. It, 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 you, you try to explain it. I, even to me, I mean, they used to have to have a car that would drive to the airport two or three times a day to pick up ingredients because it wasn't like now where I get, you know, from yeah. Tivoli mushroom company, I'm not making fun of it. It's like, but now it's, I just press whatever I want into a phone and I have my mushrooms there the next day. Uh, like, sourcing this is so guy, much easier. They were on the yeah. phones with a guy named, you know, Justin that was going out into the woods and picking whatever he could and then driving that to the airport and then the chefs were driving the... Co- I mean... Yeah, yeah. yeah different. <laughs> and still doing 150 covers a day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Try to wrap your head around that. It's like... But I think, you know, now that, now that I'm thinking about it, talking about it, I think maybe one of the reasons... Uh, I mean, I, back in the in the 2000s, this wasn't the reason that people weren't paying attention to the history. I think that was just different because they were focused on, like, all the stuff that was coming out on YouTube. But there's also the phenomenon where <clears throat> I think because so many different people aren't represented in kind of the canonical history that they just want to be like, ah, yeah. I'm not part of that, so I don't really want to learn it. And I think that that's valid, but I think, you know— Eventually, when more people are part of the history, maybe people will want yeah, to have history you again. Know, you know what I mean? I, again, I hate to sound like old man river here, but like, like, I don't know about you, but like, you know, I used to come home from work and I would like read a cookbook. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you know what I mean? Like now, never mind when they get home from work, they're on the, the subway already on YouTube watching, uh, I don't know, somebody ride a donkey into the ocean off a cliff and do a backflip. You know what I mean? Because it got yeah, that, a million that, likes. You know what I mean? Like that video like exists because that's what I'm going to do right after. <laughs> I am but you, you know what I mean? Like it's just it's I love just donkeys. Different. It's just different. Yeah. You know, like you know, I used to go to whatever her name was Bonnie Slotnick's bookstore yeah. on my her, day her, off. Just, you know what? We yeah. only went. John and I for the first time only like three years ago went. I was so embarrassed. Like three months. Yeah, ago but I used, I used to sit at Barnes and Noble on the floor for three, four hours. I couldn't afford uh, to buy listen, a book. Listen, I think it's good and bad because. Uh, I think it's I think it's good and bad. The the people it was so hard to get information. It was so hard. Information was like gold. Mm-hmm. Like even up until the 2000s, right? You could not get the information. So like I wanted to learn how to run a rotary evaporator. There was nothing. There was no websites. There was no nothing. Nothing, right? So like you called Wiley. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, I taught no, I I I was the guy that brought anyway. So like <laughs> but like, you know, so we're working on stuff, and now that information is available in a way that allows people to grow so much faster. I think that's 100% great. But the downside is that um, a lot of the individual voice has been lost. So the miracle of, of cookbooks back in the day was you could get lost in somebody's mind, you know? And uh, I think that there's a kind of, like, that kind of understand human to human understanding that's transferred through a cookbook or long format thing or an album you know what i mean is like not as prevalent so i think that like for every gain there's a loss i don't think i don't think anything's 100 percent gain or 100 percent loss you know what i mean agreed Uh, you just reminded me like i'm I'm, I'm, of those days and like i remember i stumbled across the the zuni cafe cookbook and um you know talk about getting lost like you know i was on the like, you know, I'd bring it to the beach and like read it as if it was, you know, like a, a novel. And then I remember the first time I went to San Francisco and you know what I mean? I would, I couldn't have been more excited to go, to go see this restaurant. It, it makes it like, you know, but that was before I couldn't just Google beep, what, beep, beep. what the Zuni cafe, you know, videos. And like, it's like, it was like a pilgrimage just because I had found this book and like fell in love with what I was reading and her how, voice. How was, know? how was the meal? Amazing. Yeah, I, know I had oysters, a Caesar salad, a chicken, you know what I mean? Like everything you're supposed to eat at, at Zuni and I was by myself and Oh, you like, you like solo like dining? I was meeting, I don't remember what I was doing there. I was meeting, maybe it was my dad, I don't know. I was meeting somebody in Northern California. So I went a couple of days earlier specifically to, to go to Zuni Cafe. I was probably like, 
20 years old or something like that. Yeah. And I, but the staff, like, the staff like sat with me because I was by myself. It was just like a magical, magical night. Do you, uh, do you automatically VIP solo diners? I always, if, if, if I'm there and I see a solo diner, I will 99% of the time go over and strike up a conversation. And you can usually get the vibe right away if they want to talk to you or if they don't. Um, but, you know, I usually bring them like a little amuse-bouche just, and then, just, you know, hey, how's it going? It's funny. Sometimes when people uh, have somebody coming to meet them, they'll, they'll tell you that right away. So that you know, so that you know that they know that they're not by themselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> well, I'm just waiting for my wife. It's, it's all good, man. I was just coming over to say hello. <laughs> yeah, like you know, my my idea of solo dining is like inserting like uh, five fifty cent hot dogs into my face on the run down the street. You know what I mean? Like, I love sitting by myself at the bar. Yeah, I, I do. I love it. I I'm not good at it. You know no. what I mean? Like I. Uh, I'm well known for consuming everything very quickly. So, okay. yeah, very quickly. So, like, you know, Nas, Nas, you know, Nastasia's had many. How many meals have I ruined of yours, Nastasia? So many, which is weird that you don't like dining by yourself because you think that you don't care whether people are there with you or not when you do have people there. That's not true. It's just I eat so much faster when I'm alone than even when I'm with people. It's a, it's, it's a, so, like, and the same thing goes at a bar. So, like, someone puts a drink down. I don't have anyone to talk to. Boop. Boom. Yeah. You know what I mean? And then, and then what? I'm going to sit. I mean, what am I gonna, I'm either going to get shellacked or I have to sit there and wait. What am I, staring? Like this? Staring. I mean, you could talk to somebody. Now, who am I going to talk to? <laughs> I mean, so, it sounds like you're pretty good at talking. Well, not to, like, when, look. Uh, you have radio shows. Yeah, yeah, but, like, I, I could talk to people who, like. I get it. Like, here. You're coming here, and it's like, oh, he wants to talk to us because he's coming, so therefore we can talk. But like at a bar, this person is sitting next to me. I don't know them from a hot rock. Yeah. Why are they going to want to talk to me for? Yeah. You know what I mean? Anyway, it's always nice though, you when you do book? meet somebody that that wants to talk. So it's like a, it's like a revelation, especially now. What, what do you think about people reading books at the bar? We used to have a couple yeah. of people that would come in and read books. I used to do that. You yeah, know? my my day off, I'd, I'd sit at the sit at a restaurant and at the bar with a book. Yeah, I find it hard. Like part of my kind of mental thing. I find it hard to concentrate on, first of all, I'm only ever reading boring technical stuff. So it requires a lot of concentration. And secondly, uh, I, it's hard to concentrate when the people next to you are having conversations that I can hear because it intrudes into my brain. It's like, it's like somebody putting a small ice pick into my head and erasing so then I'll have to read the same line a thousand times in a row. You know what I mean? That's the, you read it, you read when you go out solo stars. Yeah. 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 You know what I don't like? I don't like the, I don't like the solo, the solo phone stare. Oh, when they're just yeah. doing it just to do it? Yeah. Oh, I had it. Well, when they're just sitting there on the phone the whole time, because it, the light is bad. My issue with it is, is that they don't look good. You know what I mean? And so like they throw that blue light. I had this idea. So nowadays, you know how your phone now at night, like it turns kind of yellowish so that it's got the, I don't know whether yours does. Our phone, like at 8 p.m., it puts like a a yellowish tinge on the screen. Yeah. So people don't look like blue and dead at a bar, right? But like my idea was, what if you had a phone that was like, um, make me look good while I'm texting and it, it had like, m- like motion, like yellow, kind of like, like a little bit of like a flame background so that you had that like candlelight instead of this like death pallor, you had like this kind of candlelight vibe Listen, on I, your, I, I smell an app. Yeah. I smell an app. Yeah. I think it's a good idea. By the way, as we're talking about books, I just realized I, I feel like I, I have to give a shout out, um, because I'm reading a book now that I'm, I haven't enjoyed reading a book this much in a, in a while is, um, uh, Peter Hoffman's, he just put out, uh, it's called 13 Ingredients. Yeah. Remember Peter from Savoy? Oh, yeah, yeah. What, what are the 13 ingredients? I mean, I can't name them off the top of my head. What are some of them? I, ju- I just finished reading about leeks. Oh, uh, another one was garlic. Uh, he, he's like, he tells his story through 13 ingredients. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 it's, I'm telling you, it's a great read. I don't cook with leeks, even though I love them because I hate cleaning them. Yeah. Well, he kind of says that in, in the thing. Mm-hmm. But it's not a cookbook. It's, he puts one recipe per chapter. It's the story. It's, it's the, he's a really talented, uh, writer. And I used to love Savoy. All right. Well, uh, I'll 
I'll check it out. I have not read it. I, you know, nope, hasn't come across my radar. I will check it out. Uh, all right, so your first job, you're working for your de- first restaurant job, right? Or one oh, of your first. My first restaurant job, I was working at the Hofstra University oh, Jesus. Country Club. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> I was, was a bartender. Like, I was like were, 15 what, years old. What were those people like? Uh, what were they ordering? I don't, I don't think I could say that. What legally. were they ordering? Uh, back then, was it, I mean, it was vodka soda back yeah, then? Yeah, I mean it was it was basically your your spirit plus soda. Those are martinis. Um, Good tips, bad scotch tips. Scotch on the rocks. I mean, like, I was 15 years old. If if I left there with 30 bucks in my pocket, I was happy. But oh, bad tips. I started as a busboy, and the bartender quit. And the guy was like, "Can you pour drinks?" I was like. I was totally bullshitting, but I was like, yeah, of course I can pour drinks. And like, I went back there and I, was, I had no idea what I was doing. Oh, man. People were like, give me a scotch of the rocks. I'd give them like a pint container of scotch. Well, I'm sure they were happy. <laughs> I mean, I, it took me a week or two. I figured it out and somebody like semi-trained me. But, um, you know, imagine being in high school. I was a bartender. It was, it was incredible. Yeah, well, I'm sure that, uh, you know, that I still had to put the tables there. away at the end of the night. Yeah, but. yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, so, but your first... Well, one of your early jobs, you said when you were 16, you went to go work for your dad at his place, American Place, right? I did my first summer at, at an American Place, yeah. So what's that like, like working at a place that your dad's, it's gotta, it's gotta in a way, suck, right? Because like we were going before, earlier, like I remember, you know, when I, back when I had bars, like, you know, when a family would come, I would say, listen, I'm not going to intervene on your behalf, you're totally on your own. It's like, you know what I mean? Like, because he, he, he can't pull favorite card on you or the, or the whole staff will erupt, so it's got to be hard. Yeah, it, it was, but you got to remember, I was a kid. I, mean, I was 16 years old, 17 years old, however old I was. Um, so I, I also, you have to remember, I didn't know, like, emotionally, mentally, that I was going to work at one of the best restaurants in the country either. I just thought I was going to work at Dad's restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> You know what I mean? So like, I, I, you know, I just was going to work. Like I, it didn't like dawn on me till a couple of years later, to be perfectly honest, you know? Um, and you know, that first summer, you know, it's not like they like put me on the grill. You know what I mean? Like I was, yeah. I was a prep cook and, um, you know, I finally got to, to make my, you know, my job after prep, I probably did prep for like a month or two. And then, you know, I was finally allowed to make the mixed green and Caesar salads. But is that where you said that you had the classic like first day where you like hacked your thumb off? You hacked the tip of your thumb off? Oh, Jesus. Um, well, that was that was before I did a summer stage. That was because I used to go in periodically. You know what I mean? Like maybe go hang out in the kitchen before we like went to a Yankees game or something like that, like growing up. But yeah, I was I was in there for one of those days. Like I was in there for a day or two, you know. And um, I, I remember the guy's name. I think he's pretty successful now. His name is Bill McPherson. Um, but he, he gave me a, a, cle- a cleaver. Like, again, it's like a time. Meat, like a meat cleaver, a, not like a Chinese a cooking cleaver. cleaver. Yeah, a meat cleaver. I don't Again, imagine giving like a 15-year-old kid a cleaver. And he gave me this cleaver to chop chives. Yeah, it's a mistake. <laughs> and now imagine you're a kid, so now imagine, oh, you, you know, you can just see what happened. I, whack, oh, yeah, yeah. And I was just like, ah. Not only that, the chives were ruined. They're so bruised. Those chives were hosed. The chives, these chives are ruined. You crushed them, you son of a bitch, with this cleaver. Meanwhile, your thumb is like. I mean, listen. Looking back on it, I probably feel worse for Bill than I did for me. I mean, I mean, when the chef, your dad probably ripped them up. Never mind my dad. The the, my chef, uh, his name is Richie. uh, Um, I mean, you know, Richie was a big guy. I mean, and I I can't imagine what he did to Bill for. For, for doing that, but... Um, well, it seems, seems to be working all right, the thumb. That's okay. It still kind of goes <laughs> off this way. But, uh, but anyway, so I spent that summer, but again, I didn't know what I was doing. I was I needed money. My dad was like, well, then why don't you work at the restaurant? da 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 um, You know, and then I did the following summer for... Um, um, I don't know if you remember Chinois in Maine in, in L.A. It's one of, it was Wolfgang's Puck's second restaurant, um, but the chef's name um, was uh, Kazuto, Chef Kazuto. Um, they did a short-lived restaurant in Times Square called Above. I did a summer in there, which was great because I'd never worked with like um, Asian ingredients like that. And it really um, opened my eyes to like clean, simple, pure, you know, kind of zen. Is that how you worked from that into uh, Patricia's restaurant? So the sous chef at Above, his name was Gavin, who I met working at 
an American place. He then went to AZ. So then I think maybe the following year, like it gets all fuzzy in there, college, high school, I can't remember everything. Um, but I think it was this, when I graduated college. You still didn't know you wanted to be a pro, right? No, I, I didn't. I still didn't until and, this time. And your brothers and sisters aren't pros, right? My One of my brothers is. Yeah. Um, and my sister just became the GM of Peasant. Um, yeah. But I graduated and I was kind of following Gavin. Like Gavin... Um, he he then became the, the executive sous chef at AZ. So I, I went to AZ um, and then we opened Pazzo, which turned into BLT Steak. Um, we opened Pazzo um, and that was with Patricia and Gavin and Pino Maffeo, who was an amazing chef and mentor. Um, and then that was when the whole BLT thing happened in my life because Pazzo and AZ both closed and that was when jimmy haber hired laurent torndell so let's talk laurent torndell so you are working and this is right around when this is happening is when i was writing for food arts magazine so like i was having to interview didn't you wear a lettuce jacket on the cover i don't know i think it was food arts yeah i don't know but like uh i don't remember hardly anything michael batterberry was one of my mentors who was food arts so he had me write that uh i started writing for them in like oh four and uh, I remember when BLT, so like, you know, Laurent Turandel, the LT from Laurent Turandel, opened uh, Steak first, right? When they opened, and then I think with Prime, I was writing an article on deck ovens, right? And you opened Steak, Fish, and Prime, right? Yep. Yeah. And uh, I called Laurent Turandel, and I was like, oh, you know, because I'm supposed to be talking about deck ovens. He's like, actually, I like panning steaks. So... And it's, we, you, so, but you guys said you cooked them in a pizza oven, but what is, what is your feeling? Cause you were actually doing the, the work, opening those things on panning the steak versus deck ovens versus pizza ovens on steak back then, because that was when, cause to me, the quintessential American steakhouse is a deck oven experience, right? Uh, and you didn't start with a deck oven and the idea of panning in a restaurant, like you do it on a, on a line in a French style place, but not, or in a bistro, but not in like a steakhouse. So you want to talk about like, like the theory of operation there? Yeah. I mean, honestly, I think it's most likely because of production. I mean, I think, listen, if I, if I'm cooking, uh, it's a tough answer to, it's a tough question to answer, which I like better, you know, um, I think if I was going to tell you what I, what I like the best when you're cooking a steak, like if it's just one steak, me and you, we're cooking, I get to choose what we're doing it on. It would probably be charcoal with a little bit of wood to add some smoke. And that would be my best way. To, but as far as like a steakhouse goes and pan versus deck broiler, it depends on the size of the place. You know, if, if you're in a steakhouse and most steakhouses do a lot of steak, do 300 covers, mm. right? Somewhere around there. So because it's a steakhouse, that's probably 280 steaks a night. So you just do the simple math, you know, in a deck broiler, you know, like the one we had at, <clears throat> at BLT, for example, was a double. I mean, you could fit like 30 steaks on each level. That's 60 steaks at one time. I mean, you never did that, but you How could. How big is the sweet spot on one of those decks? Uh, probably two feet by a foot, you know what I mean? Which is where the guy's really working it. Right. But you could still sear... Like, he would pull the thing out. You know, let's say it's Saturday night. You're going to sell 50 uh, filet mignon. You get the marks on 50 steaks. Boom. You put the thing in for a minute. You take it out. You put the steaks on the rack. You just seared 50 steaks. Right. If you did that in a pan or pans, right. <laughs> you're quadrupling time, effort. And, you know, when most people go to a steakhouse, they're looking for that char and that kind of, you know, um, grill mark kind of right, that hardcore flavor, hit. Yeah, you know yeah, what yeah. I mean? Like that's what they want. So I think when you're working in like a restaurant, like for example, at forge, um, uh, you know, we pan sear the steaks, you know what I mean? Um, but when I had American cut, which I don't have anymore in my steakhouse, we used the deck broiler. And again, it was because of how many steaks you serve, but the early days of BLT steak, which is where the question started, we were pan searing, most of it, but again, I think it was probably that was what he always intended to do. Because you got to remember, at the time, you know, Laurent's kind of known for steakhouses now. But before that, Laurent was 
French. Three star. Yeah. The place was called Cello. Um, you know, he came from Trois Gros. Yeah. I mean, you know, he just won something in Las Vegas for like the best French restaurant in Vegas. Like he was, everything was, you know, arose, the thyme, garlic, butter, and we basted everything in that. Um, but Pazzo had a Woodstone pizza oven. So uh, when, remember Woodstone? Are they still around? Yeah. 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 So when Laurent took over this kitchen, Jimmy wanted to do a steakhouse, I think, or maybe, I don't know, I don't know the, exactly, I wasn't in those rooms, um, but anyway, somebody wanted to do a steakhouse, so they obviously wanted to do it for the, the most economically pleasing way, so they were like, just use the kitchen, and Laurent was probably like, well, I'm going to baste my things in a wood-burning oven, that'd be perfect, we'll do a steakhouse, and, you know, you got to remember, <laughs> like a, a wood stone opening is... I don't know, maybe yeah, not 18 big. inches wide, yeah, yeah, maybe, yeah. you know, 12 inches tall, maybe. And, you know, Laurent coming from France and who he is, you know, he's like, I want to, I want to do, um, I want to set up a, a grill in the wood burning oven. So of course I was a young, you know, kid like, yes, chef, yes, chef, we chef. So we, <laughs> we put a sheet tray into the, uh, oven and then put, bricks on the sides of the oven and then put sheet tray racks on top of the bricks and then made a fire in the oven and then took the coals and put the coals underneath the sheet tray rack. <laughs> this was, by the way, for those of you who don't know, I'm pretty sure that you weren't legal to have open fire in that no, thing. Oh, never mind legal. It was idiotic because like you could only fit two porterhouses on this stupid rack. It was right, because it's a tiny, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. to get in it, you had to go like this and then like this. For those of you who don't know, Woodstone actually, <laughs> even though it's wood stone, like they say that gas works just as well in, the, in their ovens. And then if you're going to use wood, you're supposed to be a little bit of wood on the sides. You fire it and you move it over to the edges. You're not supposed yeah, to fill it so, with racks. I mean, because it's not that big. Fast forward to like, you know, the restaurant's busy now. And, and by the way, that worked when we were doing friends and family and doing 30 or 40 covers and it was great and it was cool and sexy and it was you know what i mean like it was like whoa this is amazing and then you know all of a sudden you start to get busy and you realize like all right well you know order in you got six porterhouse and eight cote de boeufs on back and you can cook it on the thing like this big i mean the limit was basically once we got over 100 covers like, yeah, like okay, come back in gotta, an, come gotta, back yeah, in an hour we gotta figure you. something else out yeah 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 <laughs> Uh, well, so speaking of wood fires, so like, you know, one of the well-known, like kind of, everyone loved this restaurant. It still exists. In the in the late 90s, Peasant opens up. Frank opens Peasant in, it's right by the French Culinary. Where is it? It's on like Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Yeah, Elizabeth. And ran it for 20 years. And he was, I interviewed him about this, about wood, wood fires, is that he basically is like, I'm going to do the wood fired big old wood fired oven, which he basically built. Right. Yep, yep. And you know, classic, like, you know, whole roast pigs and all this. And it's just a, a place. All the chefs I knew would go to peasant and, you know, just have a, a, a nice meal. And then he decides to give it up. Give us the date. He decides to sell. He sells you the restaurant. You took it over. Well, I, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you the backstory first and then I'll tell you when I took it. But so I, I did in it cause it's a funny, crazy story, but um, I was hosting an event there for the New York Food and Wine Festival. <clears throat> I'd always loved Peasant. I, I lived on Mulberry between Grand and Hester for a little over 10 years. So, like, I ate at Peasant probably 20 times. Um, and, you know, if you know, you know Frank. So, like, you know, I, we were friendly. I, don't, I wouldn't say we were friends, but we were friendly. He always took great care of me every time I came in, you know. But he was always working the pasta station. I mean, you know, chef, chef. And I, I gave I give this speech at the event that I'm at, you know, um, how much I love peasant and how much, you know, every chef kind of wishes deep down that they could be frank, you know, but we have these, you know, delusions that we have to, you know, be on TV and have an Instagram account and open multiple restaurants. And it's kind of just like how the world has turned into. But Frank is a chef's chef, like, you know, old school. Yeah, I tell him how much I love peasant and how much it's near and dear to my heart. Anyway, so after the speech, he comes over to me and he like gives me like this look. He's just like, did you really just mean everything you said? And, you know, I was like, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a lot of things, but I'm not a bullshit artist, you know? And he's like, okay. And like, he like stroked his beard and, you know, we just drank a couple for the rest of the night. 
And then he called me like a couple months later and he's like, I just want to make sure I'm going to ask you again. You really mean everything you said? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, Frank, Jesus. And he tells me that they're retiring and da, 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 da. And, um, you know, but I had no idea where he was going with this. I thought maybe he was going to invite me back to do like a, a night guest chef night. You know, he was asking chefs to, you know, we all do that towards the end of a restaurant. Um, and then all of a sudden I understand what he's saying. And I, I like cut him off. I'm like, are you asking me if I want peasant? And he's like, yeah, what the hell does it, was it, was it sound like I'm saying? <laughs> What's the matter with you? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I mean, wow. Uh, you know, this was in um, August. And I had already signed a contract to open a restaurant, a wood burning Italian restaurant in the meatpacking district. You know, think. Thank God it didn't happen. Yes, what a nightmare. Um, Repacking is such a freaking nightmare. Again, I, it was, that's a longer story why yeah. I wanted to do that, but yeah. it was a necessity. My wife was pregnant. It was a big thing. Anyway, and I knew saying yes to peasant was going to really... Say no to that. Yeah, I, like, to, but I, I couldn't say no. I was like, I don't, I don't care what's going to happen. Like, no. You know what I mean? So, so I just said, I said on the phone, like, yes, I'll take it. Yes, you know, we'll, we'll figure it out. And then I'm like, when? And he's like, uh, well, December 31st is my last day. I'm like, December 31st, what year? <laughs> 2019. Yeah. But, but I'm like, I'm like, Frank, this it's September, man. Like, I, how, I, I don't know if I can get all this, like, done to open an, a restaurant in January. Like, you know, and he's like, well, December 31st is my last day. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so I took it over January 1st, 2020. I think everybody... Kind no, of knows, knows what, what happened. happened. Yeah, you yeah. had three good months there, Mark. <laughs> I did. It was a, it was a fun three months. Yeah, yeah. Oh, geez, Luis. But it's back, and you know, it, it survived. Crushing. Yeah, Crushing. It survived. Crushing. But that, yeah. So, and it's still maintaining the same kind of the same kind of vibe with like a lot of the stuff off the off the. And off he the didn't. Wood. He didn't ask me to keep it peasant. I asked him. Oh, and, really? And yeah, you know, Frank being Frank was like, "You can do whatever you want. It's your restaurant now." Mm. Well, that's nice. But, but I kept the staff. Most of them are still there. All the all the kitchen guys. I don't think I've lost any of them since he left. So uh, before we run out of time, your your uh, your flagship, your name restaurant, restaurant Mark Forgio is under reno renovations right now. You want to tell that story? What happened? Uh, yeah, yeah, man. Um, New Year's Eve. Seven o'clock at night. I mean, it's out of this. It's out of a book. It's out of a movie. I mean, seven o'clock at night, New Year's Eve. We just had our first seating, and um, you know, the cooks look at the chef and they're like, uh, "Gas is gas is off," and you know, the chef's like, "Well, what do you mean? Just turn the knob." Like, I don't have time for this. Like, stop. You know, and they're like, "No, no chef, I'm telling you, the gas. Like, Who turned the gas off? You know." So we go around the back to see if the somebody turned off the thing. Gas is on. Go downstairs, we check breakers. I, we, nobody knows what to do. Because that just doesn't happen. No. no. <laughs> I've had many things happen. Me too, man. That's I mean, not... Like I said, this is... That's Adam. not one of the... So what happened? So again, we had like... I hear music. Is that I, so we got two minutes. So, uh, you know, the, we, we shuttle people to Peasant and One-Fifth because we don't know what else to do. Um, but how'd the gas go off? To this day, we don't know. We're still having an investigation. An animal like died in the tube? What happened? We still don't know. We just had everything repiped. Con Ed is trying to test it. Da -da -da. And everyone knows how awesome it is getting uh, yeah. gas work done here in this. All right. So, so let me ask you some questions. So I, I, I was looking at the uh, menu at Peasant. I see you buy uh, ham from Cesare Casella. That's yep. a great move. I see you're uh, staying on your Mulberry Street roots and you buy uh, stuff from DiPaolo's. DiPaolo's is the best place. Uh, now, here's the thing. Fennel pollen, I thought was going to be a huge ingredient. You have fennel pollen with the roast pig. That's something they used to do at Peasant still, right? So you keep the fennel pollen. Why didn't fennel pollen ever become as big as I thought it was going to be? I, I don't know, but I, I do think you see it at the, I hate to say the right restaurants, but, you know, the uh, a lot of chefs that I know and respect use fennel pollen. Yeah. What right. about uh, you put you put gremolata on a steak? I only ever used to have that on Asabuco. My mom used to make and she put the gremolata on. You call it dad's gremolata, and people who don't know you. They're like, "Oh, your dad? That's nice." <laughs> but yeah, like, it's like a, a bone marrow and uh, red you, wine you, reduction. So you put the oh, you put the bone instead marrow. of olive oil, it's bone marrow. Oh, nice. All right, strong. Uh, and uh, I'm gonna run out of time. All right, I was gonna ask you about different gnocchis because I know you, but I wouldn't have time. How about this? Why don't you just say? what it's like being the Iron Chef versus being a challenger because you're on both sides. Like, how much different is it when you know the kitchen? I mean, the Iron Chef definitely has the the upper hand in that 
sense. You know what I mean? You figure out little tricks and nooks and crannies. Yeah, but are you like, uh, I mean, did you like doing that back in the day? I loved it. Yeah. I mean, listen, I'm not hating on today's world, but there was a time when Iron Chef was so pure and it was great ingredients and great chefs going against each other without any hoopla. Yeah. What was your favorite? What was your favorite one that you did? Favorite of your episodes? Uh, I just did swordfish, and I really, really enjoyed it. Again, it was just like a pure ingredient. It wasn't like Halloween candy or something stupid. It was. You it was like, like cooking a, with swordfish? Yeah. I used I used to get it from Alex. He just retired. Blue Moon, yeah. Rod and Reel. I don't know swordfish. I ate so much of it overcooked in the seventies that I never. No, it has to be good. I mean, I don't. I don't just like go into key food and buy swordfish. You know what I mean? Like just I, a, just a bag of worms. You just buy a bag of worms. <laughs> no, I mean, I get it from fishermen straight from the fishermen. It's the only yeah. way I eat or buy swordfish. Yeah. Someone needs to do a prep of just swordfish worms. Yeah, just. and I don't. I wouldn't order swordfish in a restaurant unless it's a chef I know either. <laughs> well, Mark, thanks for coming on. Uh, we have more to talk about, but obviously we didn't get time. And uh, I didn't even get to ask you on what the hell's the difference between a, a, a pizza and a pizza. Is there a real freaking difference, or is yes. it just a little fluffier? What's no, the difference? No, no, the whole thing is different. It's it's rice flour, soy flour, um, and that's in where Oto is. That's one yeah, fifth. The it's new ice restaurant. cold water when you make it instead of you know warm water. It's you know it's a three day fermentation. It's it's as wet as you could possibly imagine. The hydration is like ten percent mm-hmm. higher. It, it's it's a whole different animal. All right. So if you want to try these pizzas, you can go to uh, one fifth, which was where Oto was, uh, where I used to have a big bar tab because they. Uh, I did some work there, and they paid me in bar tab, and then they went out of business before I could use <laughs> well, we'll, it. We could honor it. We could all honor it. Right, all right, all right. Well, Mark, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. Right. Anytime. Cooking Issues. 